With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, here we go. Stand by. Three, two, one. The thinking atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea. The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof. Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together for a more rational world. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Assume nothing, question everything, and start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast, hosted by Seth Andrews. Whether it's a seasonal holiday or someone's birthday, anniversary, bar mitzvah, a celebration of an accomplishment, or just because somebody somewhere put a star on the calendar. We make and we mark the moments of our lives with rituals. And Sasha Sagan's new podcast wants to explore why. Now, Sasha is the daughter of the late cosmologist Carl Sagan. She's author of the book For Small Creatures Such As We, and she's the host of a new podcast at Only Sky. It's called Strange Customs with Sasha Sagan. And she connects with authors and speakers and thinkers and influencers of all kinds. It's so much fun, tons of great content, and Sasha carries on the Sagan legacy with a joy and wonder about the world we live in. Strange Customs with Sasha Sagan, available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all major podcasting apps, or just log on to onlysky.media slash strangecustoms. That's onlysky.media slash strangecustoms. Thinking is power. We are all guilty of... Well, unthinking moments in our lives. I think as part of the human condition, we are, uh, you know, we can be guilty of bad thinking. We are always trying to find better ways of, of sort of assimilating the world and processing information. And I'm talking here with Melanie Tresick King. She is founder of the Thinking is Power website. Hi, Melanie. It's good to have you. Hi, it's great to be here. So I'm glad we're speaking now because Mercury is no longer in retrograde. Uh, and I know that, you know, as the as Mercury, by the way, I had to look up what this actually means because people 
in that culture, always wondering about it. Mercury appearing to travel backward across the sky. We refer to these periods as times when Mercury is in apparent retrograde motion. And to those who practice astrology, these times in particular, traditionally associated with confusion, delay, frustration, calamity. You've heard this kind of thing, Melanie, Mercury in retrograde. Yeah, indeed. That's why I had to post about it. And it is an illusion, like you just referenced. It, it Mercury actually doesn't change its orbit. Uh, it just looks like it does because it travels so much faster on the sun than we do. And so people have become accustomed to this idea that when it happens, it happens about three or four times a year, that it must be causing some sort of change in my life. So what I try and do is what is Mercury in retrograde? And then why might one think that that actually has an impact on one's life? And all of those thinking errors that uh, you probably know so well get involved and, you know. Astrology fascinates me. This <laughs> whole idea that um, you can look up into the cosmos and the stars either predetermine or or can foresee or warn. I always remember seeing that we'd read the horoscopes for fun, but they were hardly ever signed. Like who wrote the horoscope and why are they all so conveniently nebulous? And if I was to choose the wrong month, somehow that may apply as well. I mean, have you gotten into the astrologers? Uh, yeah, actually I do an astrology case study in my class getting a little ahead of my skis here, but thinking is power came from a class that I teach. And, you know, astrology is one of those really common pseudoscientific beliefs. And I use pseudoscience in class to teach science. And so with astrology, we explore what is the origin of this system? It actually no longer even applies because it's over 2000 years old. The earth is tilted a bit differently than it was then. There's actually a 13th sign as opposed to a 12. So I tell students I'm a Taurus, but in the <laughs> I'm an Ophiuchus, I think okay. is what it is. Um, but then I actually, I give them horoscopes, blinded, actually double blinded from the day before. And I say, okay, here's here's the 12 horoscopes in the traditional system. Which of these best describes the day you had yesterday? And of course, they don't say anything. And so it's just open to interpretation and you know, sampling in the class. They don't do any better than random chance, but it's such a good lesson of if you knew what your horoscope was and you're reading your horoscope, it's like, oh, I'm a Taurus and I'm reading my Taurus horoscope for the day. I'm going to interpret that with my own meaning as opposed to trying to be objective about it. It doesn't say anything. I wrote about it back in uh, 2015. I had a chapter in my book, Sacred Cows, about the fortune tellers, and they had there was a professor, I forget his name, who'd come up with kind of a meta prediction or a meta astrology and had handed it out to the students. And it was, again, conveniently nebulous. You have aspirations to become more than you are, yet you struggle with a secret self and private thoughts. You love people, but you are also worried about being hurt. You know, these common sort of parts of the human experience written in a form where they could apply to anybody. You say this is sort of an epiphany for the students? To, does that light bulb go off when they start to see that it's so subjective? Yeah, I mean, it does. To be fair, I do astrology later in the semester, and I actually start class, I think, with the experiment that you're talking about. It's Bertram Four 
I think it was in like the 50s. He was a psychology professor and he took horoscopes at the time and just put them into what he called a personality reading and then gave it to a psychology student and said, how accurate is this reading? And they said about a 4.3 out of 5 accuracy. And then he showed them that they all got the same ones. So those statements we actually know today as four statements or Barnum statements, uh, PT Barnum. And I actually start class with that. On day one, I'm going to start tomorrow. Um, on day one, I give my students, I tell them I've got an astrologer friend. And turns out I'm actually a really good liar when I want to be. I didn't know this about myself. <laughs> But it's like, I have an astrology friend. She's really famous. I'm not going to tell you who she is yet because, you know, I, I really want to test her. She's going to do this for free, but she knows I teach this class on skepticism. And so she's offered to give you personality readings for free. If you choose to do this, you know, here's some basic questions. And I actually probe them a little bit, like um, name and birth date. But then like, if your house was on fire and you could take one thing, what would it be? Or if you could have one superpower, what would it be? And so I ask them these really basic questions to make them think that I'm trying to learn something about them. So I'm going to do that tomorrow. And then next Tuesday, I'm going to give them their readings and how accurate. And again, my students are about like fours, 4.3, 4.5 out of five. And then, okay, now get with somebody else in class. Talk about your, what about your reading spoke to you? Why did you think this was so accurate? And by this time, the students are like, I can't believe she got me. Wow. She really, like, who is this? And they're trying to look her up. And, and then they realize that they all got the same thing. And so, you know, the lesson, of course, is, well, I suppose don't trust me. <laughs> I'll tell them, like, I could tell you I'm not going to lie to you again, but that's probably not true. Because part of what I do is I want them to be skeptical, even of the stuff I tell them. So a bit of humility and skepticism. But why would you fall for this? Like, why would you think this applied to you? These statements, like you said, um, we... Um, you can be, um, you're mostly introverted, but when the moon strikes, you can be the life of the party. You have a need for people to like you and admire you. I mean, we all think those statements apply to us. They do apply to basically everyone. So, you know, the kinds of thinking errors that would make you fall for it. Okay, now I just saved you money, <laughs> which is one of the main benefits of skepticism. And so don't fall for this again. I actually sat for a psychic reading just part of research and just as a gag. And I mean, it was the full Monty. She had the black cat and the, she had a crystal ball, actual crystal ball. And of course there was a gift shop. <laughs> yeah, I thought, well, that, that's very telling. Um, okay. Let me bounce out of astrology. We may come back to the psychics in just a few, because I know that's part of the, the focus of your work. You are an assistant professor of biology. So you have a background in the sciences. You want to sort of give me, for those who are just being introduced to you, your resume in a nutshell? I have an undergrad in biology and chemistry and a master's in uh, ecology, plant ecology, actually. I studied prairie um, ecology on the Great Plains and fire suppression, that sort of thing. And teaching background as well. I have nearly a master's in education. My husband got a job, so I moved and started teaching at a community college. And I love it, actually. I love teaching. So at a community college, most of our load is teaching courses. And it's the lower two years. And so a lot of our students are trying to transfer to four-year schools, and they need a science requirement. And the vast majority of people who don't want to be scientists when they grow up, the kind of science classes that they funnel you through is what we call baby bio is basically intro bio. Um, there's the most popular biology textbook for non-majors. 
in the United States has about 800 pages, just over 800 pages. And that's a semester's worth. And in that 800 pages, the first chapter has about four pages on what they call the process of science. So basically you start class with, here's the scientific method and it's this recipe version that doesn't actually apply. And then it is, here's all the interesting things we know about biology. And look, I'm a biologist. So I think that stuff is really interesting. And I think people should know that stuff. My students hated it. And so basically thinking is power came from my frustration with teaching science that way. Because I kept thinking if I have one semester to teach the average person what they need to know about science, about how it works, about why it's reliable, about um, when you should trust something, when you should be skeptical, what would that look like? And so I started with that in mind and I blew it up and made something new in its place. And thinking is power was an outgrowth of that effort. You've got a double whammy too, because not only is it overwhelming for those not pursuing a science degree, but let's say it is um, a requirement. Somebody walks in, they're just punching the clock, get me through this class so I can tick the box and get on with my life. And you then are trying to ignite in them a sense of enthusiasm about a course they may not have actually wanted to take. Does that happen? Oh God, they don't want to take it. They come into class science phobic for sure really not wanting to be there. They're there because they have to be there. Of course, they don't have to be, but nevertheless, I actually remember um, the moment where I thought this is just, this is broken. I taught that course for about uh, 10 years. And in that 10 years, I probably used six different books. I tried every single way. And I remember one semester I had really given it my go and I was teaching students about the stages of the cell cycle so that they could understand cancer. And I mean, cancer, cancer affects everybody, right? So I really thought that by helping them understand this, the biology of it, that I was empowering them, that I was helping them be science literate. They were, <laughs> they had constipated looks on their faces. My mom would say, like, they just train wrecked, like deer in the headlights, did not want to be there. And I thought, is this actually what they need to know? Because even if today, it, looking back, if some of the students that I taught that to, if they were unfortunately diagnosed with cancer, like right now, is what I taught them, would they remember it? And if they did, is that what they needed to know? Like in their moment of, I need answers, I need hope. I didn't really help them find what sources are more reliable than others. Why do some treatments seem more effective than others? Why is chemotherapy or radiation more reliable than something you go find on natural news? Right. And there are people out there that want to prey on their hope. And I honestly feel like I let them down. So, yeah, I changed it. Yeah, I well, did my best. That's a whole other show probably, right? We get a new education where we are training people to bullet point their way through a test, cram the night before, get a C plus. Man, that's over. Instantly forget. I mean, we are... We're not really teaching, are we? Or maybe we're teaching to short-term memorize and totally remain uninterested in the rest of our lives. I'm sure you've got an opinion about education in the 21st century. Oh, God, yeah. Look, I want to clarify, facts are important. Like, there is a time and a place to have to understand the basics of biology. One of my favorite questions asked people, so my husband's a musician. His friends are very educated. And I ask them, I must be really fun at parties, um, what is... What do you remember from college science? And they get this like, look, well, they don't remember anything. And 
they don't remember anything, quite frankly. And they, they hated the experience. If we get a chance with our science students, facts are less important than how we know, right? Science is a process of learning. Science is understanding reality by testing our expectations against the evidence. It's a willingness to change our minds. It is trying to propose explanations and test them, trying to not find evidence to support them necessarily, but trying to find why we're wrong, how we can be wrong so that we can learn something. And so by teaching students this like fact-based approach, we leave them with the wrong impression. When I was in school, uh, Pluto was a planet. <laughs> there was, <laughs> I know. Oh, I didn't you, <laughs> you and Neil deGrasse Tyson have a long conversation on that one, I'm sure. Um, epigenetics wasn't a thing, right? There are so many things that have changed since that time. We have learned things since then, and we have changed our mind about things. And so by teaching students, like, here's a collection of facts, they think science finds proof. When science has proven something, I'm going to accept it. And that's not what it does at all. And so, yes, if we get a chance with our world is built on science. We need people to be science literate. So in our classes, we need to be teaching what science is, how it works, why it's a reliable form, um, reliable way of knowing, as opposed to the stuff that we learn from it. So I follow the work of Timothy Caulfield and you know Dr. Jonathan Stay and a few others, uh, actually a great many others. And it seems they are just... I don't know, they're standing against the tidal wave of pseudoscience, alternative medicine being the first one that comes to mind, the nebulously titled wellness industry, which is a trillion-dollar industry, really loaded with woo, right? I mean, unsubstantiated, unregulated claims, and yet they look. You mentioned natural news, right? You go to the website, hey, that's pretty slick, looks legitimate to me. So we're in this ocean of misinformation, disinformation. You got your work cut out for you. <laughs> like, will you log on in the morning and do you think, I can't, we can't stem the tide. We're circling the drain, damn it. I mean, do you ever feel that? Oh, totally. And I bring in misinformation to class and then my students, they find misinformation. They find corners of the internet that I didn't even know existed. <laughs> so, like they're exposed to things that I couldn't have even considered. I'm remembering there's a Carl Sagan quote, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, but he said something to the effect of, if we teach people only the findings of science, no matter how useful or inspiring they may be, without communicating the method, how can people possibly understand the difference between science and pseudoscience? So what I took from that was, we need to teach the process of science, and we need to include pseudoscience. So I include pseudoscience, science denial, conspiracy theories, misinformation, various forms in class, because if students don't see what bad forms of knowledge look like, less reliable forms, I should say, of knowledge, then how could they tell the difference between knowledge that was produced through something that was reliable and something that wasn't? So I'm a huge fan of using misinformation in class simply to address it. Now, it's like whack-a-mole like there's no possible way to keep up with misinformation. Every time you think you've got something, something else pops up. And so it's really more about the characteristics of misinformation and how they mislead us, which then to me, to help students understand that, it means understanding their own thinking processes. I mean, why do we fall for misinformation? It's because of something in 
in our brains, right? A way that we're processing information, our our in-group alliances, our identity, our emotions, our existing beliefs and worldview. And so I want students to understand themselves and how they interact with misinformation and then the characteristics of misinformation so that they don't fall for it. Talking here with biologist and professor and founder of Thinking is Power, Melanie Tresic King. I almost called you uh, the guru. You know, I figured maybe you're just reaching out and aligning the chakras of all the people who visit your site. You know, you're, their chi is vibrating in the positive or, or what. I mean, you've encountered that stuff, right? I mean, some unlicensed, almost anonymous somebody with crystals and incense makes some claim about how the universe is vibrating in the negative. I mean, but I mean, what are we talking about, right? It, you've dived into that pool? Absolutely. Energy medicine in particular, I include in class because it's a great form of, of pseudoscience to talk about. The class that I've developed, I focus on what I call three skills. So it's critical thinking, information literacy, and science literacy. And to do that, I use misinformation. I use inoculation, which we can talk about. I have them create misinformation. And then I give them a toolkit. Like if you ask someone to critically think through a claim like um, this crystal necklace will protect you from bad energy and give you good luck. So that sounds great. But how do I think through a claim like that? Now, I mean, we probably know that that's pretty much BS. It doesn't really say anything and it can't work that way. But the average person who's coming up with a claim like that, who's never seen it before, where do I start? And so I made a toolkit to help them critically think through claims. I introduced the toolkit early in the semester, and then I have them practice with it all semester. We can talk about it more if you like. Um, the toolkit is called Floater. The idea is to stay afloat in a sea of misinformation. And I, I do know it's it's a sticky acronym, which is important. <laughs> um, you can remember it. <laughs> like I'm hearing something that sounds woo-wee. Where do I start? Oh, Floater. I don't care how they remember it. Um, falsifiability. Like, can I prove that wrong? If somebody says that like there's energy vibes coming out of something, well, can we measure that? I mean, all energy claims are based on a form of energy that isn't measurable or observable. So it fails that one. Is the claim logical? Are you being objective? Are there alternative explanations for what you're seeing? How strong is our conclusion? So tentative conclusions, what is the evidence for it? And is it replicable? And so, um, the idea is to be structured and think through it. I provide them that early in the semester, something like energy claims we get to later in the semester because it's human health and we all have, actually, let me back just for one second because we do use, um, I, I'm a huge fan of using pseudoscience in class, but I think it's important to start with pseudoscience that's less triggering, misinformation that's less personally threatening. So that something like energy claims, which I've had students feel really strongly about things like Reiki or acupuncture. Um, I've even had students in class whose you know, family members practice those things. I want to build up to that because I want them to learn the skills that I'm talking about, like with the floater acronym. I want them to learn that early. And I'm going to give them lots of opportunities to practice on it with things that their emotions aren't going to get in their way. And then work up to things like vaccines and um, climate change denial and uh, GMOs, that sort of thing. Well, you speak to epistemology. How do we come to knowledge, right? And if we have a belief that is linked to our identity, 
the same parts of our brains fire up as they would if we have a physical threat, right? The ideological threat is there. And instead of listening or opening the door, we fortify, we double down, we reinforce, and, uh, you know, we batten down the hatches. That's really smart. So you actually sort of start in the, uh, the shallower waters before you go after anything that someone might take personally. That's really smart. I wish I could take credit for it. Um, I actually start with witches because I, I got it from um, uh, another wonderful pair who teach a course similar to mine. And I start with witches. I I go through like the witch trials. And so they can see how strongly people believed that witches were casting spells that were causing various things to the point where they were killing people. They were torturing and killing people. And so the vast majority of my students don't believe in witches. So they can, you know, well, they really believe strongly. What was their evidence? Was that good evidence? How do we evaluate that? And then the goal is, of course, to get them to internalize. And by the way, I use, um, you have a wonderful talk on the satanic panic. Oh, yeah. Because um, you can trace the witch trials to like the satanic panic, the same sorts of themes about like people eating babies and drinking their young, their blood to stay young and so on. You can trace it to satanic panic and, you know, a bunch of things in between, but satanic panic and then to QAnon, but it's the same themes that keep popping up. And so my students today who are, you know, really young and getting younger all the time, um, they know QAnon, but they don't know satanic panic. They don't know witch trials, right? So connecting those dots is actually really useful to them because they can see the epistemology involved in people thinking that witches were real to today, you know, Wayfair selling like kids in furniture. <laughs> I haven't heard that one yet. I've heard of the oh. uh, trafficking children in the pizza parlor basement. And I've, you know, I've heard about the adrenochrome and all the, you know, some of the other ones. And you look and you're like, oh, this is so irredeemably stupid. No one would ever actually buy this. And then you log on to the world and you fear for the species and you say, maybe we deserve extinction. I'm not, I, maybe, I'm not saying we do. Maybe we deserve extinction. Um, is the floater concept related to something else that is on the thinkingispower.com website, the mental immunity project? Are those related? Kind of, sort of. So I wrote a piece last year, Teach Skills, Not Facts, which was my basic premise about the course. And then I wrote about the floater toolkit. And in that process, I realized in my inclusion of pseudoscience in class, Students create misinformation so that they mis, uh, can understand the techniques used to mislead. And I, I realized what I was doing was a form of inoculation theory. And so I am now the education director, actually, for the Mental Immune Project, uh, Mental Immunity Project. And the basic premise is that, you know, our, our minds have um, immune systems, that information can be like pathogens and infect us and cause harm and then impact somebody else as well, infect others. And so we have a responsibility to evaluate our beliefs and to not let information spread. Inoculation is the idea that if we expose people to bits of misinformation in a controlled environment, then like a vaccine in the real world, they've built antibodies to that misinformation and they can then identify that misinformation and not be infected by it. 
So the Mental Immunity Project is a work of like Andy Norman and a bunch of mental immunity, um, cognitive immunology researchers. And the Mental Immunity Project is then like the, the public facing arm of that, where we're trying to apply these principles to people so that they can understand how their minds work and how to not be fooled uh, by misinformation. I want to talk about the whole Dr. Anthony Fauci is Satan. Thing going on out there that and a whole bunch more we continue our conversation next okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thanks so much for listening. I'm talking here with my special guest, biologist and teacher, Melanie Tresick King. She is founder of thinkingispower.com. And let's start with a personal question. You've got to have, like, there has to be a kind of woo, misinformation, pseudoscience, grift, whatever. When you encounter it, your head pops off your body. You have to literally get your head off the ground and stick it back on because it drives you so crazy. What are some of the things that are happening in this sea of misinformation that hits you the strongest? That's a really good question. Right now, I'm kind of overwhelmed by people. It changes depending on what I see for the day because people's ability to be fooled by things constantly amazes me. Um, right now, it's germ theory denial. Like, I, I can't for the life of me understand how <laughs> Wait people- Wait a minute. Germ theory, this is happening? People actually deny the existence of germs. If you get sick, Seth, it's because you were thinking impure thoughts. You didn't lead the most healthful life. Basically, it, it's your fault. Something that you have done has left your like life out of balance, and then you have gotten sick. Yeah, like, look, we can see germs. We can see germs infect cells. We can see organisms' response to the infection of those cells. We can see them build immunity to it. And we can, like, okay, so you asked. You did ask. <laughs> oh, I just I just push the button. I just push the button and I sit back and watch. Watch the machine go. Please continue. This is amazing. No, I... I used to, um, with denial, because there's characteristics of denial, and the example I always use, like, can you believe people believe this, is HIV denial. And because I just thought, I mean, how how could anybody deny like HIV AIDS? Uh, but these days, it's, it's really germ theory denial. So we see Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has committed his entire life to public safety, and how he has become vilified 
by so many. You know, somehow he's the demon. Arrest Fauci was the hashtag and I think may continue to be. And I'm interested in sort of these, um, I don't know, social mechanisms behind why people turn on other people or think it's all a big conspiracy. Or perhaps most alarming to me is this idea that doing anything that benefits a society is a surrender of my individuality as a quote unquote free American. And, and I just, I'd think to myself, why would it be a problem to be a member, responsible member of a community? where we think about all of us and not just the individual. This is a whole, this is like a whole philosophy, you know, or a social sciences discussion, Melanie. But uh, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, uh, how it, uh, there seems to be kind of an in-group thing going on whenever people defend bad ideas and vilify good people. I don't think a lot of people will realize just how many of their beliefs come from people in their groups. Um, you know, we, we all think, but that doesn't mean that we're good at it. And the assumption, like for a lot of people is like, so if you ask someone, why don't you like Fauci? They can probably come up with reasons why they don't like Fauci. But those are all justifications they're giving to themselves to support a belief that they arrived at probably for illogical reasons. Um, and most science denial is motivated by not liking the consequences to something. And so in this case, um, the consequences might be something like mask mandates or um, vaccine mandates or um, any number of pandemic measures put in place to slow the spread of the, the virus. And so with my students, what I try to get them to understand is to really think about I actually do an epistemology exercise with my students. Um, and the start is where did that belief come from? And really being honest with yourself and then what is your emotional attachment to that? And again, then people start to realize, well, actually, it makes me really angry. Well, then that might be motivating your thinking. You might be coming up with justifications. How would you know if you were wrong? Fauci's, oh God, with the Fauci and Peter Hotez, actually, at this point, um, it, it, it's as someone who's devoted their life to trying to help people understand science, it, it's truly heartbreaking to see scientists uh, treated that way. But it's not a new playbook. It is by far the uh, most common and unfortunately the most efficient way to, effective way to discount a scientific conclusion is to attack the messenger, right? And so that's what we do. We don't like climate science. Well, those scientists are all in bed with whatever and shills for whatever. And so by saying something like that to ourselves, we feel better about having that belief, what you yeah. glanced off of as well, no one's going to tell me how to live, right? No one's going to mandate anything for me. So I'm going to go out and burn as many. I've actually seen uh, some Twitter accounts. Where they're like, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy the most gas guzzling black smoke emitting vehicle to show them. I'm going to, you know, no one's going to tell me what to drive. Or we've seen this with the whole gas stove kerfluffle. I saw a meme the other day. It said, you know, given our culture, it's a miracle that we actually ever did away with leaded gasoline. You know, <laughs> it just blows your mind. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So Gwyneth Paltrow, you ever been to her website? Have you gone to Goop and seen this multi, multi, multi million dollar woo factory? What are your thoughts? <laughs> um, hope sells is my thought. 
I actually, her vagina eggs are pretty classic. <laughs> I use those things. <laughs> now, I, I hate to take you down this road. For those who have not followed us, who didn't hear our Gwyneth Paltrow show from a couple of years ago, I, can I ask you, what, what's a vagina egg? Can you describe what it is she's selling to people? Um, it's various like um, types of rocks shaped in the form of eggs that you're supposed to put into your vagina and do kegels. And it's supposed to give you various types of energy, good energy. But um, It's part of this whole form of woo called vagina woo. Um, you can steam your vagina with like various oils. You can... <laughs> That's right. You almost, you may have titled this show. Hang on. Vagina Woo with Melanie and Teresa. Oh, no, no, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So there's a whole industry around this is what you're saying. Yes, it is. It is. And so I actually, with my students, I do this great assignment on, I teach them the characteristics of pseudoscience and then how pseudoscience is sold. So something like the vagina eggs, um, you're going to have to um, use some sort of unfalsifiable, like um, it improves your life's harmony and balance. They're natural, because of course, and they've been used by the ancients for hundreds of years. And scientists are all opposed to this because they just apparently want you to suffer for some reason. Um, but I teach them all the characteristics used to sell pseudoscience, and then I have them make advertisements. So this is the inoculation again. I have them create misinformation. So design me an ad that's going to look something that would appear on Goop. Or you're scrolling through TikTok or Facebook, and what is the ad that you would see for a male enhancement supplement, like a sexual enhancement something, a um, weight loss pill, you know, an anti-aging cream, whatever it is, sell it using these techniques. And uh, honestly, you can't tell the difference between something that you would see on Goop or my students, except for, I mean, with as much as my students think that they can sell their products for, she sells them for more. Apparently, like I, I'm missing my calling. That's where the money is, is mm -hmm. in selling. <laughs> We're in the wrong business. You know, you could sell wellness. I could go be a preacher. We could both kind of go off and do our thing and, and probably make a better living. But could we sleep at night? That's the question. Um, back to thinkingispower.com. I don't know. Just kind of give me the one sheet, right? Give me the brochure on this thing because I'm going to link it and I want everybody to go and just take the deep dive. But thinking is power is what? Thinking is power is my attempt at helping people understand how to think better, how to make better decisions and live a better life. And so um, the found I, I've structured it so that there's a foundations page. Um, the foundations page is if you were one of my students and you were in my class starting from the beginning, working to the end, it starts with, you know, our beliefs and epistemology and then perceptions and memory and so on. Uh, it's a work in progress, but in a perfect world, the average person would go there and start the meeting, go to the end. Now, I know that in real life, people don't tend to do that. I have a topics page, which is where I explore how to use those foundations to understand various forms of woo, mostly. So things like mercury retrograde or psychics, 
I teach people how to be psychics. If you want to practice your cold reading skills, um, there's uh, alternative medicine. And then there's a section for educators. So if you're an educator and you want to implement these things in class, here's some assignment ideas. Like I actually post some of the assignments, the active inoculation on how to, um, like I have, I have one on how to make conspiracy theories. Uh, there's one on how to how to sell pseudoscience, that kind of thing. So depending on who you are and what you're after, there's various things for you to explore. And then I post on social media, it's my little tidbits usually for, for the day where I try to apply something that's specific for the day. One of the things I really try with thinking is power though, is to try to approach most issues in a way that's not triggering for most people, knowing that most of the topics I cover are triggering to someone. <laughs> but at some point, you've got to cover those. And so, um, yeah, it's all an exploration of those things. So when you say triggering, you're not walking on eggshells. You're not being too accommodating. You're not trying to bubble wrap the truth. I just have to stop and play devil's advocate. But you are sensitive to the fact that you might be hitting that emotional part of someone that causes them to stop listening. Would that be a fair way to address triggering? Yeah. Um, so for something like, because the people who need to hear the message the most are the ones who are initially going to be turned off from whatever the topic is. Uh, so I understand that I can't reach everyone. and um, But I'm hoping that the way that issues are approached, like alternative medicine, um, one of the biggest reasons people uh, use alternative medicine is because they think it works for them, right? They tried it and it works right? And so, okay, what does that mean? Like, why would you think that that works? Here's other explanations for why that might work. Here's what alternative medicine is and what the evidence for that is. And so I do address those topics, but I try to do so in a way that um, a person who is theoretically open to it, but who still believes in it, hopefully will hear the message. Yeah, I get that. I get that. It's hard. I mean, there's also kind of a I don't know if this comes out the way I mean it, but we're smarter than they are. Like if you look and say, ah, oh, big pharma is, right? Well, we all know big pharma, there are a lot of problems, right? A lot of problems with the healthcare system. And yes, there is corruption. I mean, but people want to make it a, a thing where, well, it's they're all in the tank and they're all corrupt. And here's Robin Hood over here, which is alternative medicine X or, or homeopath Y or natural path Z or some sort of under the radar thing that no one wants you to know about. And, uh, you know, I, there's kind of a superiority, right? Uh, hey, I'm smarter than everybody else in the room. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but do you sense that? Totally. No one will change their mind when they think that you're just telling them that they're dumb. Now we found that when it comes to challenging religion i you know we i've seen people and they're like well religious people are mentally ill which is totally false and it makes me want to grab somebody by the throat i i despise that position um or they think if you go in and call religious people morons that somehow they will look at you and say well you know you're absolutely right i've been completely moronic about all of my superstitions and i will now slough off my religious dogmas and we will all go frolic and reason build together and that never happens we will never attack people i i'm convinced we'll never attack people into better ideas i know i wouldn't have felt that way and when it came to a number of beliefs, whether it was naturopathy or 
any of those other things. And so I appreciate your approach. I also, it's funny because I had heard about you sort of referentially. I'd known someone who had subscribed and it showed up in my feed. And I like the Facebook posts that come out because they're digestible. They aren't an attack, but they do make you go, hmm. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's what you're shooting for. Is that right, Melanie? That makes me so happy to hear. That's exactly what I Good. Exactly. Things that make you go, hmm, thinkingispower.com. I think you'd be a fun science teacher to have. Like, I hated biology, mostly because it was a series of data points. You know, the teacher, I think the teacher was actually the gym coach who had to teach a science class as part of his contract. That happens a lot. Doesn't it, Melanie, you find someone who just sort of got shoehorned into the position in our education system? It obviously left you with a great opinion of uh, biology. It did. (laughs) And it's funny because I was in my 30s before I got excited about science and scientific things. And I, I caught the fever of wonder. God, that sounds totally cornball. That sounds very Hallmark movie. But, but, you know, to be inspired by the fact that, man, I don't know anything and every day can be a discovery. And I didn't know that. And I need to change my mind over here and maybe we'll try. And instead of being intimidated or feeling insulted, it's, I was kind of a gift. I mean, it it sounds so corny, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Melanie, you feel that? I do. Um, I, what, what changed your, your mind? Like what got you excited about it? Well, the best example I have is, and you mentioned Carl Sagan. When I was in a very fundamentalist religious home, my parents somehow allowed us to watch the 1980 PBS airing of Cosmos, the miniseries. But they stood over our shoulders and they were like, well, he's wrong about this and this didn't happen and this is not in the Bible. But I think because it was kind of sciencey and we were like Star Trek kids, and you know, I don't know why they they let us, but I remember I I was trained to discount or be suspicious. If it's not in this box, then it's false and I can stop thinking. And as I became more and more dissatisfied with science as like a book that you would open and find the science answer, but more of a process. You know, kicking the tires. Does this work? Does this not work? I went back and and watched Sagan again. His videos, his speeches, reading his books, and the storyteller in him, and the fact that he had that childlike wonder. I was introduced to Carl Sagan really for the first time at midlife, and his enthusiasm was infectious, and it just bled into me. And it's probably the main thing that propelled me from the starting gate into my own journey of discovery. So Sagan, he, you know, he was a he was a gift. I, I wish I'd had the chance to shake his hand and thank him because he he really does bring forward the poetry of learning and discovery. And and if we don't know, let's keep asking and testing, right? So I don't know. You asked, <laughs> Melanie. So I had to give you my oh. speech. But yeah. Because Sagan also um, epitomized what I I strive to be, which is um, humble. Um, I don't always succeed, but um, and kind, 
right? Yeah. His approach was always the, and he even has like, we need to remember if somebody, if somebody has arrived at a different conclusion, they're doing the best that they can. And we need to remember to be kind in our approach because we're not going to change their mind any other way. And he just, in my estimation, as far as science communicators go, stands alone in that. And I wonder how much of his, how his tone of his delivery was a part of why you were open to his message. Yeah. No, it's absolutely true. I think I received him as a human being first. We are fellow travelers kind of a deal. And it's part of, I think, the work that I do. It's the tone I set. I can see it's the tone that you set, where instead of walking in with labels, we are all brothers and sisters on this planet. Let's try to find our human commonalities. Let's let's try whenever possible to start with mutual respect and good faith and goodwill. And once we've developed those foundations, the bigger discussions can take place. And I've had more success with that than I ever found going in with a series of bullet points. You know, let's relate to people. Let's let's find our commonalities. And then once we get philosophical, religious, political, whatever, I don't know, it, people are more safe. I, I, I'm convinced people change their minds only from a position of safety. And if they feel unsafe, you're not going to get to them. And I'm convinced of that. I mean, would you agree, Melanie? I totally. That's why I start with pseudoscience with misinformation that's less personally threatening if i go in with vaccines or with climate change denial they're not going to change their minds so my only chance is to go in to the shallow end like i love how you say that yeah wade into the shallow end and establish some safety and some trust and get them the skills that they need to go into the deeper end the website is thinking is power. I will put that link in the description box. There's a Facebook page. Subscribe. I don't know. Just take the dive. I think it's just another tool in the toolkit as we're out there trying to see better ideas win the day. And I think it's also a good way for us to check ourselves because no matter how enlightened and skeptical and scientific we often think we are, we're also human beings you know, flawed and fallible and sometimes wrong human beings. And we need to check ourselves as often as we can. Melanie Tresick King of thinkingispower.com. You are a pleasure to talk to. Thanks so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me again. It was an honor. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring the Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com.